Neil, do we have you? You got me. Awesome. Okay. Sorry about that. We've been having some little difficulties here. Technical problem. Oh, I didn't even have. Oh, I didn't have your mic turned on, turned up, Don. Okay. I'm sorry. Anybody who works with computers has difficulties. It's, yeah. That's the way it works. We, it's not even, I wish it was with computers. It's on air. So I'm sorry, people, for the person who's normally here to help us do the phone thing isn't here today. So we had a couple moments of problems, and we have it all figured out. So CITR 101.9, we have Neil Adams on the phone, the creator of Continuity Comics Incorporated, is that a good way to put it? Yeah. And mastermind behind many, many comic revolutionary projects and... Um, stuff. And stuff. Stuff. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. the stuff, man. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Actually, this is a big thrill. My, my name's Don, by the way. Hey, Don. Um, yeah, I, this is kind of a big thrill for me because I've been, uh, I've been a big fan since I was a kid. Oh, and, how uh, big are you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm pretty big now. Okay, but uh, you know, it's like I, I was uh, bragging to everybody about uh, about get to, to be part of the uh, the interview today because because I think like you you've got to be one of the most uh, influential comic book creators of ever. Comic that book. that and a couple bucks will get you on the subway. Yeah, yeah, I know, <laughs> but, but it's uh, you know to some people it actually matters. Yeah, I guess. Uh, actually, I have a. I was going to start off with with a little. I was going to start off with a quote I actually found in an old comics journal um, from somebody named Mark Hannerfeld, who I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with. No longer with us. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but he said, "This is a, this is a great. I think this is a, a, a great quote." He said, "Neil Adams is a self-styled genius at penciling, inking, scripting, coloring, and missing deadlines. <laughs> a, a, a probing mind, brilliant, hard to describe, a dynamic personality, and he'll be the first one to tell you so." That was actually just uh, just to remind you. That was meant as a major criticism. Usually, people are very nice to me. Oh, really? <laughs> Normally they're very nice. Mark has uh, Mark used to have uh, burrs of an under his butt on uh, certain things. Oh, really? Because I, I actually I actually took it as a, as a compliment. Well, it, it, you know, it's, I, I'm a hard person to insult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm kind of the same way. I'm a little thick skin. Yeah, a little thick skin. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, it's like we talked about being late on deadlines. It'd, it'd be very difficult to be late on deadlines on monthly comic books. You know, yeah, it's just to have the editor running around going, "Why the hell is Adams doing those darn covers? He should be working on my book." Yeah, <laughs> the publisher wants him to work on the covers. Yeah. Well, that's that's baloney. He's late on my job. Yeah, well, but the publisher wants them to do the covers. Yeah, I know that. Well, that's classic because I, I I actually read that you used to do like five covers a week or something like that for. In fact, it's it. What would happen was that you know I get my I get whatever job I was working on, and then the uh, editor in chief Carmen Infantino would come to me and say, "Look, I got a cover for you," and before the end of the day, he'd have four or five covers, you know, uh, ready for me to do, and I'd try to explain to him, I, I, I don't know, it's going to take me at least a day to do each cover. That sort of takes me to the end of the week, you know. I, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I guess I'm going to have to work on nights and on the weekend to do these pages. Yeah, that's... But, a, that, but it, seemed, it seemed like they needed, the, at that time, it was a time when Marvel Comics was competing so heavily with DC Comics that uh, DC Comics had to do a little fighting back, and I guess I was there, you know, howitzer. Yeah, actually, Joe Orlando said that, uh, I found a quote from him, actually, that said that, that you did the best covers for the House of Mystery, and he said that for a while they were the best-selling books. 
Well, um, yeah, they, you know, the, the problem with House of Mystery stories was that Torlando uh, has a his, had a history of coming from the, those old EC comics, you know, those yeah, horror yeah. comics and science fiction comics. Yeah, sort of like the, the O. Henry endings and stuff. Yeah, well, O. Henry, you know, guts lying out as base pads, yeah. <laughs> running on guts and stomachs and bladders and stuff. Um, and that was his history. So over at DC Comics, with the comics code, you know, where you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that and you couldn't do that, mm-hmm. they wanted him to do some mystery books. And he was at his wit's end because he didn't. He thought, I can't do, you know, horror. I can't even do scary stuff. So he came to me and he said, well, what can I, what do you think we can do with this? And I said, well, you know, one of the things that's interesting, Joe, is that kids being scared of something is different than adults being scared of something. You know, adults are scared of guts and stuff. Kids are just scared of, you know, if they're in a museum and a, and a, a statue's head moves and an eyeball kind of goes at you, kids are going to, you know, jump and then they're going to run. They're going to get crazy. So scaring kids is not so horrible yeah, that's as scaring true. adults. So why don't we just put kids on the cover? And so that's what we did. Yeah, and it sold a lot of comic books. He actually even said that um, I'm, I'm totally getting way off topic and jumping way I'm ahead sorry. there. I want to be, Me but too. but he actually um, he also said that that they would do stories from the sketches he did for covers too. Like that, you yeah, would, you well, would give them a sketch and they would write a story around it. Which well, is, it, you know, if it, if it's a good sketch and it seems to imply a good story, it's a nice jumping off point for a story, and it allowed us to do the cover and to have it relate to something that was going on on the inside. Yeah, that's. That makes That's sense. That's pretty nifty, isn't it? Yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> okay, Robin was going to jump in here. Sure. Okay. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with us. Um, from what it looks like, I'm looking at your website and stuff, and you are a busy, busy man. Yes, well. Constantly on the go with you stuff. You can call me a man, but I'm a child. You're a child. <laughs> I guess it kind of goes with the comics field. I guess it does. I- I'm never going to grow up. Yeah. As hard as I try, um, they give me money to do this stuff. <laughs> yeah, you gotta love. You gotta love that. Gotta love it, man. <laughs> and um, Don is, has been my f- my point man for a lot of information because I've just haven't had time to gather up a lot of stuff. But looking through like all the history and stuff, like your first involvement in comics, you're someone who had a genuine love for comics. It seems like from the beginning, this is something that you wanted to do. Science like science. Uh, uh, comics like science. There are things that you know that if you're if you're really really lucky in life you get to do the things that you like to do and I've been one of the luckier people I get to do I get to draw pictures and tell stories and people give me money for it I get to study science and nobody says no I can clear a room pretty quick but, uh. <laughs> well, I I actually found it interesting that you you uh, thought of yourself as a uh, more of a storyteller than a comic book artist I thought that was really telling. Well, that's you know that what happens is that is that people put you into categories. You know, if you if you draw well, mm-hmm. and I, I draw pretty well. Uh, yeah, I guess. They, <laughs> thank you. All right, I, it's not an ego thing. Believe me, it's just a thing. I know it. Yeah. Uh, but but I really am not a drawer. I am a storyteller. I think of my I I tell stories. I'm a good storyteller because I love to tell stories, not because I know all the good stories in the world. I just love to tell stories. And I tell stories with pictures and and comic books. And incidentally, I draw them pretty well. But to me, that's just, you know, like a bonus points. It's To me, it's the story. Uh, that, and I love that. That's refreshing. You know, like in this day and age, I think a lot of the time, it's not the story. It's the, um, maybe like the... Uh, yeah, like the... the, the uh, the, the something or other. The movie. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the explosion or the, yeah, the right. coloring or something. It's not the uh, story. 
Well, and I and I am I'm, I'm bothered by it because I love stories. So you, I think you're probably like me. You know, you go to a movie and it's got all the spectacular stuff, and you walk away from it and you go, "What was that about?" Yeah, what was the point? I, yeah, <laughs> what's the point of that? I know there was an explosion at the end. That's two hours. I'm not getting back. Exactly. Um, influences. What were some of your early influences? Um, like really driving you to want to get into comics instead of I, you know going. Well, just comics. I mean, you know, stories and comics, and it's in Norman Rockwell, for example. Norman Rockwell, to me, the greatest illustrator of the 20th century, told a story in one picture. Uh, he was he was uh, held back by doing that, but of course they paid him a decent amount of money, so that was great. But he did tell that story, and when you look at Norman Rockwell's work, you understand what he's trying to say. To me, that's what drawing is about. If a drawing is a portrait. It's just boring, and it has no real reason to be. That's if true. you have a really good illustration in somebody's home, you immediately take it out. Why? Because there's a story going on, and it's distracting from real life. So what you do in somebody's home is you put up what's called a decoration. Mm-hmm. Decoration is a piece of art that looks like art, but it doesn't bother you so that you can have a conversation. An illustration or a piece of work that tells a story is distracting. You don't want to put it up on the wall because it's part of the storytelling medium. So you don't put that kind of art, even though it may be pretty, up on the wall. You read it or look at it. It's different than art. I make a very strong distinction between art and comic books using art. Comic books using art is comic books using a tool, like somebody making a good film mm-hmm. or making an arty film. Yeah, I guess it would be like the the, the difference between like just uh, the uh, almost like a cinematographer or something, like where the pictures aren't the reason for him being there. The pictures go along with telling the story. That's or... right. And if you do it wrong, then you break down the communication between yourself and the audience. And to mm-hmm. me, that's the most important thing. If I can do a comic book story, and I can throw in something that's sort of by the way. And five years later, somebody comes up to me at a convention or on the street and says, you know that panel where you put the Joker, kind of framed him in in between the jaws of the shark? That was so cool. (laughs) When that moment happens, that's what it's all about. Actually, that's uh, that brings up another kind of uh, point is is uh, when you when you started out getting into comic books, um, as opposed to com- or you know even comic strips. Like uh, I should actually tell, mention to everybody that you were also uh, the youngest writer artist to ever have a national syndicated newspaper strip in the United yeah. States with Ben Casey. Yeah, based on the old Ben Casey TV series. Yeah, that's we have all forgotten now. I mean, it, it, you know, like just just re- reading through a bunch of stuff about you, it's like any one of these things that I've been reading about would be something worth interviewing you for. In the but career, yeah, but there's like there's like about ten different things that we want to touch on because there's so I many know, different things. I know, it's tough, man. But but, but, uh, but I've had a, obviously had a really interesting life. Yeah, you you really have. I mean, because you, <laughs> you I mean you started off like like uh, as as like an assistant basically for Howard. Well, I really that? started. I'll tell you, I really started off going. I went to try to get work at uh, DC Comics, and I, mm-hmm. they wouldn't let me in the door. I heard that. Uh, Joe Simon eventually gave you work or something? And who? Is no. it, wasn't it Joe Simon at Archie that actually... Well, oddly enough, I went, to, uh, <laughs> I went to Archie Comics because it was all that was left. And I tried to get work because they were doing some realistic... They did their regular Archie comic books, but they were, they were doing superhero comic books. The Fly. And yeah, the, the, shield, the shield. Yeah, the Shield. Stuff like that. And so it, they, that was done with... with uh, 
Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. They were partners. Joe Simon was the writer, sort of, and Jack Kirby was the artist, sort of, because they both wrote and drew. Anyway, I said, I said to the people at Archie, how can I get to these guys? I want to show them my samples and try to get work with them. And they said, we'll leave the samples here. So I went away and I came back and nothing happened. I went away and I came back. And I must have looked like an awfully sad puppy because one of the guys there said, look, why don't we get Joe Simon on the phone for you? And uh, he'll tell you what he thinks. Maybe he'll, you know, whatever. So they get Joe Simon on the phone, the legendary Joe Simon. And I'm this 18-year-old kid. And I've shown my samples. And Joe Simon gets on the phone. He says, kid, I'm going to do the biggest favor in the world I've ever done, you've ever had done for you. I'm going to turn you down because there's no future in comics. <laughs> You'd just be wasting your time. So I want you to go out, find a decent job, art director or designer or something somewhere. I like your work. I would otherwise do a big favor. That the, I'm you know, turning it down. Yeah, and at, at the time, it's like it's. It almost sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, that's that wasn't such a. That was a stretch. the smartest thing he could have done. Yeah. Well, so I, I said, yeah, and but, I must have looked so sad that the Archie guy said, "Well, do you want to try doing some Archie pages?" And sure enough, I did, and I, that was my first work. I did Archie. Right. I'll tell you another little story. We'll add to that story. Mm -hmm. Funny story. I, you have already read a little bit about me, and oh, yeah. you probably have already read that I've gone out and fought some uh, some fights for creators' rights. I, 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 and that's I, something we have a lot of questions about. Yeah, yeah. that that, that so, was like, that well, was anyway. When I, so, I'm just going to cut you out for one second here. When I was sure. growing when I was growing up, one thing um, when when I started getting interest, interested in comic books, I, I always bought like fan magazines I could find, like the Comics Journal and these different types of right. magazines, like the Will Eisner. Quarterlies and stuff like that. Right. And uh, one thing I, I, I a person that fights the good fight, yeah. and 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 like some of the things that you've got behind are are things worth fighting for. Like yeah, just it, all through your career. Exactly. Well, but you know somebody's got to do it. Yeah. It really sort of comes down to that. You kind of think, well, he did it to get attention or whatever the hell it is. It's really not that. If you find yourself in a position to make a difference and you decide not to make a difference, that's just as active a decision yeah, as deciding true. to pitch in and make a difference. Yeah, so you sort of have an obligation, my mama told me. Yeah. Well, and she said, and my mom also told me, and if you and if you do shit for other people, excuse the expression. No, that's that's fine. We're on college radio. You can do anything you want. Okay, if you do shit for other people. <laughs> well, if you, uh, said, listener discretion is advised. If you do now, stuff go ahead. for other people mm -hmm. and you expect them to thank you, then don't do it. Yeah. Just do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. My mama wasn't so dumb. That's that's great advice. Actually, you know what's funny is that, that you mentioned that Joe Kubert. I found a quote uh, from him when he uh, said. Um, he said that uh, he had a lot of fun uh, when he was with you. Uh, he, he said you were, he, he found you very intelligent and and uh, and invigorating with some of the discussions that you had. Right. And and it, this, this is a great quote. He said Neil Neil was always a gadfly, and and uh, he was the guy who was always trying to push the envelope. Yeah. And I thought that that's that's pretty much sums up your entire career. I think with when it comes to whatever thing that you tried to Boy, take on. We got to get out of this Neil Adams fan club shit here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Man. I wanted to get this All over right. with I wanted to get this over with earlier so we could just ask you some straight well, questions. Let me tell you let me tell you about the, the the second story with Joe Simon. Okay. Interesting story. I had gone on then to become, well, you know, Crusader Dick, you know, with the with the white hat and everything and fight all these fights and get get the original saved and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. About 15 years later, maybe 20 years later, Joe Simon is up at DC Comics, and he's 
trying to fight to get uh, his original creation, uh, Captain America, to get rights back. Mm-hmm. So he, I'm, I'm up at DC Comics. He finds out I'm there. He comes to see me, and I'm at uh, some dark room somewhere. And he says, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And he says, I'm Joe Simon. I said, I'm Neil Adams. Oh, can, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, let's go to the coffee room. So we go to the coffee room. And he tells me about his problems getting his rights back. And, of course, in the intervening time, I've learned a little bit about rights, and I've learned a little bit about uh, lawyers and stuff like that and what you do. And I know some people. So I sit with him. I listen to his problems, and I give him whatever advice I can. I write the uh, names down on the napkin so that he can go ahead and do whatever he has to do. And he's very, very grateful. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. We're on our way out of the coffee room. And I stop for him, and I said, excuse me, Mr. Simon, do you know who I am? And he says, yeah, you're Neil Adams, you know, you fight for the, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, no. <laughs> I don't know how to say this. <laughs> you told me to get out of comics. <laughs> Anyway, you can imagine the conversation and the blush that would have come over his yeah. face, which did, which it did. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Like, it's, <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, that is. I, I, <laughs> yeah, you've uh, that, like some of the some of the uh, for the people out there that aren't uh, that familiar, you were you were involved. Um, you you were like at the forefront of the movement to to get some compensation for uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster for the their, creators of Superman. Yeah, when they were could tell us a little bit about that. Wow, there's a lot to tell. <laughs> just like just you know, the gist of your show is long. The, yeah. the Reader's Digest version. Yeah. yeah, the Reader's version. Well, Jerry and Joe uh, surrendered their rights on a piece of paper. They tried to fight for their rights back of, for Superman uh, along the way. And at a certain point in their career, when they were 45 years old, two, some lawyers told them that if they would just be quiet for the next 15 years then they can get their copyright back by going to court and even to Supreme Court, and the uh, and this um, company would uh, take them there and, and defend them. Mm-hmm. That meant that between the ages of 45 and 60, they had to shut up. That's when I was doing comic books. Yeah. And I'm asking around, what the hell's going on? Where's the creators of Superman? Doesn't anybody know these guys? Uh, I mean, I, I don't get why they're not around. And everybody clammed up. I didn't have any idea. They get to be 60 years old, their lawyers disappear. They don't disappear, they don't answer their phone. Yeah, yeah. And so they sent a letter out saying, help us. We're helpless. We've lost whatever we could get. And I realized, uh, I was the president of the Academy of Comic Book Arts at the time, so the letter letter came, that one copy of the letter came directly to me. And I showed it to everybody, and I, I decided, you know, I'll tell you what we do. In our studio, since we're doing okay, we're going to dedicate the resources of this studio to making sure that at the end of whatever time it will take, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are taken care of. So I called them up and I asked whether or not I could help them, not as a lawyer, because I'm not a lawyer and they had lost their rights anyway. But could I go out into the public and defend them and tell people their story and get some compensation for them? And they agreed that I could, and so I did. So the next four months of my life, uh, I spent uh, talking about it. We had we got on a lot of television shows and, and did a lot of other stuff. And finally, we had a news conference. And in the end, uh, Warner's, who was the company that bought uh, the rights to DC Comics, mm-hmm. um, got to be the good guys and take care of uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the 
creators of Superman, finally. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was really nice because it was... Well, it's it's because basically they weren't they weren't legally bound to do it, but morally it was something that it was just well, the right thing to do. We made them a little hot, made it a little hot for them. Yeah, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. That it's it's hard to to be able to justify the making millions off this intellectual property that the creators aren't really getting anything for and stuff. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a little something about Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Mm -hmm. Jerry Siegel worked as a clerk in California for seven thousand five hundred dollars a year. Wow. Joe Schuster, the art creator of Superman, is was legally blind at the time. He wow. could only see within about four inches of his face. Wow. And uh, he lived with his brother in Queens. He couldn't work anymore because his the work that he did was as a messenger. Yeah, so he needed his eyesight, I guess. Uh. And you couldn't use your eyesight very well. And so he lived off his brother. He slept on a cot next to a window that was cracked and taped up. Oh, wow. And that's what I had to deal with, fellas. No. Wasn't good. No. Wasn't good at all. Yeah, well, that's, a, I mean, that's, it, yeah, it's like, like I was saying, I mean, I don't want to make this a Neil Adams gush fest, but yeah, you, you, you have, you have, um, you, you, you literally have fought the good fight. I mean, even with the Jack Kirby, uh, artwork stuff, I remember you were, you, I didn't really do that much. Well, I mean, you still you still had your name on the at the top of the list on the well, uh, petition. You know, it's, maybe it was alphabetical, but still. I'm a good target, you know. Yeah. Alphabetical. Yeah, way. yeah. I'm a good target. It's really hard for people to. First of all, I don't say anything to anybody that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's hard to. If somebody comes to you and says you're wrong, and then they tell you why, you can get mad at them. But if they make sense, it's really hard to get deeply mad. Yeah. You're kind of mad. You can get angry, you know, pissed off. Mm -hmm. But if somebody says, look, here, here you have the creators of Superman, as an example. Here you mm -hmm. have the creators of Superman. What's going to happen if you give them money? You know, you're coming out with a movie. You're going to get publicity for helping them, finally. Yeah. They are going to be able to come to the premiere of the movie of their character and smile into the camera, and you're going to get to say, here are the creators of Superman, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Isn't that great? How can you possibly call that a plus? You're going to pay them the amount of money that you would pay two secretaries or two clerks in your office, yeah. and you're going to get them to promote your movie and anything else you do that has to do with Superman. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense that uh, why are you guys arguing with me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, I don't. I've never really understood that type of mentality. They used to. They used to. You know what they used to do? They used to cut up the originals at DC Comics. I, I think they did that everywhere because I, I heard a, um, a story. Well, Marvel put, used to store a lot of them away, and they'd cut some up. Yeah, and, and I would go to would them and I would them. say, "Look, guys, first of all, if you cut them up, I'll hit you. <laughs> but second... <laughs> Second, why are you doing that? Give them to the artists. Essentially, they own them because you're only buying reproduction rights. Uh -huh. You're not buying the right to have the pages. You don't, you're not paying sales tax for the actual property. All yeah. you're doing is buying the rights. But yeah, if you give them back to them, they can sell them to fans and make more money. Uh -huh. And so the next originals they turn out for you are going to be better because they can sell them to fans. Yeah, it's it? plus plus for you. Yeah, I never actually thought of it that well, way. It's just common sense. Kind what of. is your problem? Yeah. Um, but, you know, people say these are good fights, but the truth is, you know, it was like living in the dark ages. Yeah, you're just you're trying to p explain common sense to people, and they're just like too blind to see it. 
Yeah, well, it, it actually was funny because like when you when you came, you, you were actually one of the few people that I know of that are like probably one of the first first people that actually came into comic books from comic strips or from illustration because I know you worked for John, Johnston and Cushing. The big, yeah, and a lot of folks. Yeah, and and it's like like most people in comics at the time, like or whatever, even Stan Lee and Dan DiCarlo, they were trying to get together like a newspaper strip, you know, yeah. or people wanted, they like all these guys that were in the comic field, wanted to get out of it and get into comic strips or get exactly. into advertising, like Noel Sickles went into advertising, I know that. Um, yep. And that was the way it worked, you know, you did comic books until you got a comic strip, and then you'd move to Westport, you'd buy the sports car, and you get somebody to ghost your strip. Yeah, it's the retirement plan for cartoonists. Yeah, I, 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 you the know, dream. What, you know what's funny is I I found another quote by you about just about comic strips, and you said the most important thing about comic strips is that they is that they're dead. Yeah, <laughs> they exactly. should stay. And they should stay dead. I kind of like that because you said like a, a three panel, three panel things okay for a joke, but for a story, what's the point? You know exactly. And that's that. That's and that's true. what's so great about comic books. It's just that the medium and the and the way it was run was so bad for the creators that it couldn't re- it couldn't approach its potential. Yeah, it, yeah. That's because I know that you were um, like when you came in, like like the pay rates were like like uh, day and night compared to comic strips or advertising. I don't. Yeah. And one and, of the one of the first things I did when we had a meeting, we had a meeting at the Illustrators Club. And uh, and of course, you know you, what you try to do is you try to do things in a nice way, but sometimes you you rub people the wrong way. Yeah, there was a guy named Kurt Swan who did um, Superman, the Superman, yeah. really great, legendary Superman artist, the guy who who did the Superman that everybody remembers from the fifties, sixties, and seventies. Yeah. And uh, so he was at he was at the uh, at the meeting, mm-hmm. and um, and I was trying to change a lot of things in comic books. One of the things was this. I went up to Kurt and I and I shook his hand. I told him how much I loved this work and I really appreciate it. Blah blah blah. And I said, uh, Kurt, how much do you make a page? And he said, Well, uh, you know, I don't think it's uh, correct to talk about you yeah. know one's page rates. Mm-hmm. I said, Well, okay. Well, let me tell you what I make. I make fifty dollars a page. He said, What? I make forty dollars a page. <laughs> I said, You make forty dollars a page, and you're Kurt Swan. And he said, I'm not making $40 a page on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's- so, I mean, just a little bit of opening the communications, you know, letting everybody know what's really going on with the freelancers suddenly changed things. Kurt Swan got a 20% raise on Monday. Yeah, like that's... Like uh, I know the the pay rates were different. The uh, the um the the returning the artwork thing was like standard practice everywhere else except comic books. And yeah. even even the um uh the production standards were just. Oh. I, I know I know that like uh, for, for the toilet hist- paper. Yeah, and and toilet for, paper. And for the history of comics to that comic books to that point, it was like all the editors of the books were always writers, so none of them really had any input on how to make the printing even look better on any. They had of the- no idea. Yeah. No idea whatsoever. Things have changed so much in the business that it's like night and day. And speaking of night and day, colorists would color things like they were night when they took place at day and day when they took place at night because they were ignorant savages. <laughs> ignorant savages. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I know sometimes... Like walking it- through the jungle, you'd have to beat them back with a stick. The yeah. colorist. We're in the coloring department. Oh, let me get my stick. Yeah. <laughs> I, you guys, 
I actually read uh, that uh, that you worked uh, really closely with um, Jack Adler. That yeah. was the production. The only human in the production department that had a brain. Yeah, and, and he apparently enjoyed working with you because you were the one that said, why can't we do this? And he'd say, well, let's try it instead well, of we yeah. can't. I think it's that I spoke English and everybody else spoke gibberish. Yeah. <laughs> gibberish is hard to understand. You know, it sound, It's got the same words, but they don't mean anything. You, you actually did You did some great... Um, like I did, You did the... Um, did you do the the, the, the X Men cover that had the havoc, the orange cover? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was really that's that's an awesome looking cover. Like just the the color separation there just looks like that's one of the first times I've seen that in a, in a Marvel comic. I think. Well, that's one of the first times, but it's done all all the time now. That kind of technology mm-hmm. was available all along. It's just that they were in the, they were caught in the dark ages and they didn't know how to get out. It took somebody to come along and kind of jolly them along to get them the heck out of that, what they were doing. That they, they had no idea of the potential of the medium that they were in control of. And all they could do is say no, because you have to understand that in the 50s, in 1953, there was a, the Congress attack comic books. Mm-hmm. This uh, psychologist wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent, and Frederick he implied Wortham. that comic books were responsible for, you know, kids bashing the head of a, a policeman in with a baseball bat, mm-hmm. and you'd go into his closet, and sure enough, there were comic books. Mm-hmm. Hey, there it is. <laughs> there it is. And so what happened was that Congress attacked, like, like they attacked communists, only in a very small, much smaller way. Way, they attacked comic books. And so the comic book companies created this uh, Comics Code Authority, which was a self-regulating organization and a code, and they made all, up all these rules, like you couldn't use the word crime on the cover of a comic book. Now, this is you, all pretty much despite Bill Gaines. It, it, well, Bill it, Gaines kind of went to Congress and kind of yeah. kind of blew it, you know. Yeah. He, he was a big mouth. Yeah, according to El Feldstein, he had his ass handed back to him. On a yeah. platter, yeah. yeah. And he, well, you know... <laughs> Not everybody's a smart fella. Yeah. And some people will just go in and and think that, you know, they're they're invulnerable and nothing's really gonna happen and open their big mouths and shoot their mouths off and he did it. <laughs> and there you go. Yeah, there you go. Actually actually it's uh, speaking of the comic code, it was uh when you did the um the Green Arrow, Green Lantern stories with Denny O'Neill. Those were uh, pioneering, yeah. as far as content and well, uh, we actually killed message. the comics code with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, actually, I think it was. I heard a story that it was uh, that Stan Lee had just had put you guys, like DC held off on releasing them. But well, then I had gone home. Okay, mm-hmm. and I had done this cover. And if you if you've ever seen it, it's mm-hmm. basically Speedy uh, Green Arrow's uh, Ward or whatever Ward, they call him. Yeah. Uh, sitting in the foreground with the fixins of uh, hypodermic needle and other fixins there for um, uh, heroin in- in- injection, mm-hmm. and so and green and green lanterns in the background, and he's saying, "Look, you know, you're such a big uh, holier than thou fella. Your ward, Speedy, is a junkie." Yeah. Now I did that at home, right? And I. <laughs> And I brought it in. Now, this is this is DC Comics that we're doing comics like My Greatest Adventure and Mr. District Attorney yeah, yeah, and mystery, Pat Boone Comics. Mystery in Space. Mystery yeah. in Space. Yeah. Pat Boone Comics was my favorite. Yeah. So uh, I, I came in and I handed, handed in the cover to my editor, Julie Schwartz. And Julie Schwartz is a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he held it for a second and dropped it out of his hands as if it was made out of hot lead. Then I took it into Carmen Infantino's office, who at that time was a creative director, and of course he didn't want to touch it. Mm-hmm. Then we showed it to the, to the executives of Kinney Corporation that were rapidly becoming Warners. Mm-hmm. 
The suits. And they looked at me as if I was crazy and that we couldn't possibly do this, could we? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, we ought to. We really ought to, because I think it's a really good idea and a good comic book, and the comics code sucks. How about that? <laughs> so so they, they said, no, no, Neil, you're out of your mind, you, as usual. <laughs> oh, here this comes will, Mr. Adams with the, with the wild ideas. Yeah. This will never, you can't do this. It's, now, I, had, I dropped over at Marvel Comics and one, one day the following week, and uh, somebody came up to me and said, "Look, you look at this comic book here. What's look at this? In Spider Man, Stan's got a guy popping pills and walking off a roof." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Usually people don't quote pop pills and walk off roofs, <laughs> but Stan really didn't know too much about drug addiction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so right. he had him popping pills and walking yeah. off roof. The reefer said, madness. Going to do? <laughs> he said, "Well, he sent it over the comics code and they sent it back. You can't do it." So what's he going to do? He's going to run it anyway. Really? Without the comics code seal? Yeah, he's going to run it. Okay, cool. So I shut up for about a month, go back to Marvel. What happened? Nothing. Nobody even noticed the seal wasn't there. (laughs) Over at DC Comics, hell's a-popping. They went nuts. They couldn't, like, we. they had the cover. They could have done it. They didn't do it. Stan beat them to the punch. Yeah, because I, I heard a quote from Jew, Jewish Schwartz that said something like that. Goddamn Stan Lee beat me to it or something. Yeah. He, was just like, he was just, like, just pissed off to no end. Like, But he had the chance. He didn't yeah. do it. So, anyway, within a week, they called a new meeting of the Comics Code Authority and rewrote the code. Yeah. So, I, don't, I can't take full credit. I have to give Stan some credit. Now... It seems to me at this point that the Comics Code Authority is just an antiquated... Is it even around? Antiquated? Let's not call it antiquated. Let's call it, I don't know, uh, subversively bad and terrible. (laughs) Pointless, yeah. Pointless, ridiculous. I mean, it shouldn't have been done in the first place, and but it was, and it was done as a self-protective thing. But at that point, let me say this. At that point, America had turned on comics. They felt that comics were no better than toilet paper. Yeah. Well, if you were back then now and you talked to people about comic books, you could hardly get a person who would say that he admitted reading comic books. And certainly they were for kids, if even, anything. Even a lot of the people that were working in comics were ashamed yeah. to even say so. <laughs> I know. I, I spoke, When I got into comics, I would talk to a guy like, say, Gil Kane, and I'd say, mm-hmm. Gil, boy, isn't it great to be in comics? This is terrific. And he'd say, I actually uh, I consider myself a line illustrator. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's, my boy. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've heard, I've heard that that's what it, the my boy. <laughs> my boy. <laughs> and uh, and and that wasn't just Gil. That was like everybody. It's like I couldn't, you know, whip up enthusiasm in a in a hallway. Yeah. Because uh, they were and and uh, and I became a real pain in the ass. You know, people called me Smiley for about a year. Smiley, <laughs> Smiley's here. He's just grinning. Well, it's it's funny because you you're like. Probably, I think like you and Roy Thomas were, I think, the, the first two people I can think of that came into comics that wanted to be in comic books. Like everybody else was, they they started working in the comics in 1940. Yeah. And then basically after you guys came in, then I think it was like Archie Goodwin and then Dick Giordano brought all those people from Charlton. Yeah. Uh, I'm not altogether convinced I wanted to be in comics. Uh-huh. I mean, I had a syndicated strip, I had done illustration work, and I had made a, uh, uh, an illustration portfolio that I that I dropped off at an advertising agency, and when I went to pick it up, it was gone. 
Oh, really? And I had worked for six months on it. So basically, oh. I, I retreated the comic books. They let me in, and I started to do them. And I, my intention was to leave as soon as possible, as soon as I got enough work doing something else. But the truth is that within a reasonable period of time, I fell in love with comic books, and I was there to stay. Now, n- most of the stuff you do now, you're back in advertising, Mike, correct? Well, I've Looking always at- done advertising. It's one of the things that people don't know about, Neil, is, mm-hmm. is that 50% of my career has always been in advertising because I like to feed my family and pay the mortgage. Yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think you said that uh, it's difficult to make a living and do comic books at the same time. To- today, it's actually possible because okay. things have changed. There's a royalty structure. I don't know who caused that. Somebody. Yeah, I think it might have been you, but we're not going to get into that. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And you, the page rates are pretty good. That wasn't caused by me. It's just a competition. Actually, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah, what yeah. I, I'll tell you what I did. It was a terrible thing. What I did was, from the profits of my studio, I hired different creators like Howard Chaikin, um, mm-hmm. Michael Golden, Larry Hama, um, and other people, and I had them do graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Arthur and Sudum did some stories for you too, I think, didn't he? Who? Arthur Sudum or Arthur Sidum? Sidum, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Bernie Wrightson mm-hmm. and uh, and Jeff, uh, not Jeff Jones, but uh, Bruce, Jones? Bruce Jones. Yeah. With uh, did a thing called Freak Show, and I paid them out of the profits of my studio, and then I took those stories to the Frankfurt Book Fair, mm-hmm. and I attempted to sell them there, and I sold a couple of them there. Mm-hmm. The plan was this. I would go back to the United States, and then I would offer them to DC or to Marvel. And when they say, we want I would say, well, you can't have all rights, because I already sold some overseas, so I can tell you one-time rights, mm-hmm. but not all rights. And then what happened was, rather than that plan work out so great, it is young publishers or young people who thought they couldn't hire guys like Jack Kirby would talk to me about this, these projects and talk to, talk to me about publishing. And they would say things like, well, gee, you know, we'd love to be able to use people like Jack Kirby, but we can't. You know, how are you able to do that? And I said, well, you know, they're cheap. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, no, no, they can't be cheap. And I said, well, what's the best you can afford? Mm-hmm. And they would tell me, and I'd say, well, that's more than Jack gets. Well. No, <laughs> no, that can't be. No, it's true, really. You can get Jack Kirby, and all you got to do is leave him his rights, and he'll work for you. Guess what? You can do that. Mm-hmm. No. Sure enough, they could do it. So what happened was publishers started to pick off creatives. Mm-hmm. These And um, and, and uh, that really, I, 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 I created concrete by quite a few years, and it's sort of the same ecological theme to it. Yeah, mm. you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're always ahead of everybody else. What do you got to be like that? I, you know, you lose a lot of money that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, People go, what the hell is this? And then later on, everybody does it, and they, they make money, and you you blew it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't pay to be ahead of the curve. You can really mess things up. Yeah, that's true. I have a couple of quick questions. Sure. Um, let's talk about science. Let's talk about science. Science? Well, the, the con- some of the continuity covers, yeah. I've noticed. I remember working at a comic store to go to the covers. 
they're a different format, weren't they, than regular covers? Like, you used, like, a weird kind of, like, fabric-y paper? Sometimes. I used uh, indestructible paper on one comic book. <laughs> I remember that. It's indestructible. Like, you couldn't rip it. Yeah, that's Actually, what I heard. It's, all yeah. the, it's only Federal Express envelopes. Oh, really? Because wow. you can't rip a Federal Express envelope, right? That's true. Yeah. Well, I used that. It's cool. And then, of course, somebody sent in the mail one of my comic books ripped in half. <laughs> your cover. <laughs> Don't kid me. You probably had a couple pairs of pliers yeah, and a idiot. day to spend on it. The um, uh, uh, Actually, one of the things we were going to get into is some of the things that you... We should actually plug your website, too. It's neiladams.com. Yeah, it's hard like, to get to. N-E-A-L-A-D-A-M-S dot com. And, uh, yeah, I found it really fascinating. You have all sorts of stuff on there, like the anime, like some, some of the animation stuff you've been, you've done and, yeah, we do the uh, Nasonex commercials for the uh, Na- for Nasonex. That Nasonex B, mm-hmm. it's on the air all the time, mm-hmm. and that has the voice of somebody that seems awfully recognizable, but I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but that's uh, that's our actually our first advertising campaign. We've done a lot of advertising work in you know uh, conceptual work, like storyboarding. But that's our yeah. first uh, project that got on the air. Hmm. And it's awfully successful. It looks really good, uh, and I actually like the Bucky O'Hare thing there too. I saw yes, it. that yes. looks really that looked really sharp. Yeah, we did it as a as a, a TV show for a year, so it was thirteen episodes and a show. But we intend to do that as a feature length movie now. Oh, oh really? Wow. Looking looking nice. Oh, that that would be awesome. Yeah. Well, what happens is if people give you enough money to buy those computers to do that computer generated, uh, uh, you know, stuff. Uh, you, the ideas crawl into your mind, you know, and you go, I could do Bucky CGI. Cool. <laughs> CGI is a big thing right now That's for, right. for uh, animated movies. Perfect um, for Bucky. Yeah, it is. You can Funny go Animal up. Universe, Green Rabbit, cool. <laughs> happening in the future for comic book work? Well, I've heard some I'm rumors su- about I something. Just signed, I just signed a contract that I can't say anything about, but I'm supposed to be doing this... Uh, well, it's a six-issue miniseries of a character for DC Comics that wears a long cape and has pointed ears. I've heard the rumors. Some upstart guy, comic and movie thing. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't want me to talk about it because they want to make the big announcement. You know? It's been a, yeah. And you don't want to... Uh, well, I'm excited. Who's not going to know? Yeah. yeah, I'm excited. I think it'll be, uh, it'll be good. Um, it's been a... to the complaint. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll yeah. do it. But I think uh, we'll won't be. Well, wait and see. <laughs> we'll judge online. Yeah, right. Oh my god. Uh, I've noticed that with a lot of there even now with a lot of modern artists that are pretty popular is still like there's that Neil Adams feeling in some of that like especially with someone like Jim Lee. I noticed that with a lot of the figures and stuff that he used. You mean guys drawing realistically with real anatomy and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah, and that's when I was a kid, I remember reading Batman and um, getting like these old ones at flea markets and said would be awesome, and then these other, what, what's with these crappy, cheesy ones? Yeah. And I realized, well, the awesome ones were the later, you know, the, when you'd gotten on there and it got <laughs> all dark and spooky, it was like, all right. Yeah. Right. 
they've reprinted my stuff so many times that you can get them in hardcover, softcover, and mm. toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, one of my one of my favorite pictures that you did was uh, you did a, a series of Tarzan covers. Yes, uh, I did the paper for the paperbacks, and I thought I, first of all, I thought the, did you design the covers? The black yes, that was the idea. Yeah, they they look awesome. Well, the idea was since I don't do that much painting, I, uh, although I do enjoy painting, uh, to illustrate some of the Tarzan pieces. Of course, I'm a big fan of Tarzan, mm -hmm. but. Uh, to do those covers as um, des objects in design. What the hell was that? Yeah. My my, you know? my my favorite one was the one I think it was the Jewels of Opar or something where it has you're looking at Tarzan from the back and he's like leaning on the on the wall Whoa. with his knife kind of coming into the city through the crevice Crack. or whatever. Yeah, man, that was beautiful. I, I that was my favorite one of, wow. of all time. They're, again, they're all each one of them is a design concept. That's uh, you know to drive well whatever the design concept is, you got it. Um. What, um, I just totally spaced out there for a second. Um, <laughs> are you talking about science? The Wait, science that you keep wanting to talk about science. What's the oh, the hell with it? <laughs> the, the earth is the earth is shrinking or the earth is growing? Oh, uh, yes, it's growing, it's growing, yeah, it's shrinking. It's it, it, shrinking. It's no, it's not shrinking. Yeah. Actually, oh. I, I heard that you were uh, you, you were interested in sort of a cross pollination of different um disciplines. Like when it comes to cycling. Well, yeah, you you know when this the what we've been talking you and you and I here, you guys mm -hmm. and I here, we've been talking this English. Yeah. And then when you talk to let's say a doctor, he talks this funny language and he uses Latin and he uses big words. Yeah. And you want to punch him in the stomach. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> you can't shut him up and you don't understand what the hell he's saying. Uh -huh. And the same thing happens when you talk to a lawyer. You know, he uses words like I had a I had a contract that was sent to me. And there's a phrase in it. I, I don't remember what it was, but it's a, it was in French. And I called him up and I said, "What's this? What does this mean?" He, he says, "Well, this means this." I said, "Well, it's in French." He says, uh, "Well, that's a common, you know, term that we use in the legal profession to mean this because it says it succinctly." I said, "But I don't understand it." So what's what's wrong <laughs> with that, it? You don't say it in English. It's French. I said, well, can you take it out and just put it in with English words? He said, are you saying that you, I should take it out just because it's French and you don't understand it? I said, no, I'll tell you what. Let's find the same phrase in German and put it in. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? Oh, I understand. Well, I'll take it out and change it. Thank you. Was it hard to drive that nail in your head, pal? You know? So the same thing is true in science. You know, science really is interesting. Mm -hmm. and it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Science is great. The problem is they talk in that funny language. And not only do they talk in the language, different scientists talk in a different language. Yeah, so they don't even cross talk to each other. Yeah, they, I mean, they can't talk to each other. And if you sit them at a table and you talk to a geologist and a physicist, and, and they're across the table, they get this funny glazed look in their eye. I know that glazed look. That glazed look is when you don't understand what the hell the other guy's saying. <laughs> That's a very familiar look to me. You can see it, you know, when you're yeah. talking to somebody and they get that funny look yeah, in their they, eye. Yeah, and you just... can say that weird thing that, yeah. you know, uh, are you drooling? 
Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah, well, they, not naturally. I got that. I'm in school right now, and like I'm taking political science and history, and I was taking sociology class, and all of them, you can use the same term, but all of them mean separate things in each class. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, why I mean, can't you just say what it means? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it bothered me when, when I found out that my otorhinolaryngologist was an ear, nose, and throat man. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's a. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. There's a, there's a thing in Toronto every year called Idea City, uh-huh. and there's a there's a website. It's called Idea City Online, and um, it, it's actually that it's exactly what you've been talking about, where it's a cross pollination between like different disciplines. So it has like scientists and architects and artists and uh, and uh, dancers and musicians and and doctors and and everybody yeah. comes together in like a forum. It's like every I, think, every. I think we ought to adopt a new language called regular talk. Yeah, yeah. Regular talk. I want to talk regular talk. If you don't talk regular talk to me, I'm going to ignore you. Turn around and walk away. Yeah. And and I think that it ought to be done. It ought to be done in classrooms. You ever notice that the teacher you like the most could talk regular? Yeah. You know, <laughs> actually, it's true. That, that is. It's true. They, yeah. they made themselves understood, and they. I did it. I had a thing in class one time. I had a, um, a teacher, a drafting teacher by the name of Mr. Poznanski. Mr. Poznanski knew everything. He was one of our favorite teachers. Every once in a while, he had a little problem with language, but basically, he was really smart, and we loved him. One of the guys asked how an atom bomb worked. Explains it at the end of the explanation. He says. Did you guys understand that? Who understood that? And of course, my hand slowly goes up. Everybody else in the in the class is trying to drive their hands through the floor because they don't want their hands seen by this teacher because they don't want him to ask them. So he looks at me and he says, "You understood that?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Could you explain that to the rest of the class more to find out if I understood it than any other reason?" Mm-hmm. So I did. So he looks at me, I finish, he says, yeah, that's right. And he turns to the class, he says, does anybody understand that now? Everybody's hand shot up. He said, what? <laughs> he couldn't believe it. I had said the same thing that he had said. Just replace some words along the way, and they all understood it. Yeah, that's all you need to do sometimes. That's what you need to do all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, no kidding. These guys don't understand poo. <laughs> they can't. <laughs> You're speaking and, and Don's you want, language right now. Yeah. You want you want scientists to understand one another because it actually may be important. Yeah, this the science is true. project that I'm working on, which you don't have to ask about, and I don't have to answer. I, you know, what? <laughs> we have five minutes, yeah, so let's, let's go you know. for it. What, what's the science thing you're working on? Okay, I'll tell you what it is. I'm, I'm working on a book called uh, a, a conversation between two guys in a bar or a new model of the universe. I've heard about that. Yeah, it'll probably be, end up being called or. Okay. <laughs> the title's a little long. Anyway, it's about two guys in a bar, right? And one guy is bitching about tectonics and stuff, but I don't have to tell you. It's a, it's it's fun, you know. It's a little technical where it has to get technical. And there's a video that goes with it, and some of the cuts of the video are on my website, so you can go and visit them there. At neiladams.com. Yeah, neiladams.com. Anyway, 
I'm, this is like 40 years ago, right? Uh-huh. And I'm drawing pictures, and I'm a big science fan. I used to read, like, science books in my local library like you would read adventure stories. Yeah. I would read experiments. Like, one of the best things in science books are they give you an experiment, they do some stuff, and then they'd give you the result, and then they tell you why. Mm-hmm. And often it was on the next page. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't open that page, and I'd try to guess what was going to happen. The beaker blew up. Oh, yeah? You know, shit like that. <laughs> and then they would turn the page and go, oh, wow, this is cool. Anyway, I used to love that stuff. Yeah, that's so funny. Anyway. Sorry, go on. Okay. Anyway, so the scientific uh, community announced to the world um, that they had made an observation that seemed to them like South America and Africa fit together. I thought, hmm, I noticed that when I was 10. <laughs> And so they've investigated since then, and they discovered that all the continents were together on one side of the Earth. And they made one big supercontinent. And it took them about three years, but they named it Pangea. You ever hear about this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm looking at this, and I'm going, geez, this all makes a certain amount of sense. Like, I get, you know, that they had the same kind of dinosaurs on all seven continents, and the plants in Europe are the same as the plants in North America on the East Coast. And there's a lot of animals that are the same. You know, you got marsupials and you got these kinds of you got cats. And so, hmm, that's cool. And then you have tectonic matching, mm-hmm. where you match the tectonic levels of the, of the sedimentation on one side of the ocean to the other side. Mm-hmm. And it matches, so you kind of go, well, this is this connected to this. Mm-hmm. And, I would, and I think about this and I say, are they doing any matching in the Pacific Ocean? Mm-hmm. You know, they're just matching in the Atlantic Ocean. Are they matching in the Pacific Ocean? Like, you know, did that come together too? And it didn't seem like they were doing that very much. So I'm imagining myself in my, like, little space taxi, junking across space, you mm-hmm. know, jinking across space. And I'm approaching this planet, and it's got all these continents covering, you know, one quarter of this planet, and they're all together on one big giant island on one side of the planet. Uh-huh. And I drive around the planet, and the rest of the planet is ocean, five miles deep. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, who put this planet together? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some thinking. Did God come along and, like, grab all the continents and jam them together on one side? Is this like, oh, but there's a cop here, and he stopped all the planets as they were spinning around, and they all kind of jammed together. It's a traffic jam. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to justify this in my head. It's not making any sense. Are there any, like, islands in this ocean, you know, for, you know, other plants to grow? But apparently not. Apparently all the islands, all these continents were together on one side of the Earth. And they can prove it because they tectonic matching and all the rest of it. And I thought, you know, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, why aren't they matching the Pacific to see if it goes together? Well, of course, you can't match the Pacific because, you know, if the Atlantic comes together, if the Pacific comes together, then Earth would have to have been smaller. Yeah, or all on, you can't have it all on both sides of the Earth. You can't have it, right? Doesn't yeah. make any sense. But then I thought about it, and I thought, you know, sauropods, you know what sauropods are? Those big dinosaurs with the big, long necks? Yeah, yeah, the, the big, big, goofy ones. Yeah, they weigh about four to five times as much as an elephant. And an elephant can only walk. Uh-huh. Not only does an elephant walk, he has bony structures in the upper part of his legs that protect his head if he spins it from side to side. So if he turns from side to side, he actually turns his whole upper body from side to side. Uh-huh. Because if he didn't have those bony structures protecting him, his head would snap off. Uh-huh. See, that's not so good. Um, I'm going to have to... I have the other guys standing here behind oh. me ready to start setting up, Neil. Okay. Oh, I'm boy. very sorry. 
Um, oh, we didn't even get to talk about the X-Men. Oh, my life uh, will go on. We could, uh, yeah, we'll have to do it uh, again. A part Another two. Time. I Anytime, time, re- guys. Uh, oh. We'll just call you up in the middle of any, anything. Yeah, yeah we'll get know. drunk and call sure, you up in the middle of the night. Yeah. Neil. <laughs> I, re- I really do appreciate you coming on the air with us. I look forward to seeing your future mysterious work. Right. Um, won't say yeah. what it is. Yeah, when when um, are you planning on doing this... Um, this last graphic novel you're talking about, the science thing? Are you? Is it going to be like a scientific book, or is it? You'll be here. Yeah, scientific book. Or like, is it, is, like, is it going to be out sometime in the next? Yeah, it will years? be. But you'll be hearing about it in other ways. Okay. Because oh. I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's keep it okay. up. That's, so what you, that's what you do best, I think. That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. So neiladams.com, okay, everyone. Thank you, Neil, and yeah, have okay. a good day. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs> that was Neil Adams. All this classic stuff from the 60s and 70s being reprinted in lovely archive edition from DC Comics. Um, next week, we're going to be joined by Fred Grissom, creator of Hate Song. Mm-hmm. Wonderful webcomic. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to balance out some like you know indie guys and some other guys. And um, Neil Adams is one of my... So he wanted us to start out with uh, Queen We Will had problems and we had problems at the beginning of the show so i'm going to end the show off with it uh chr 101.9 fm in vancouver next next is rhymes and reasons Thank you.